Hi there. So my name is Rob. This is Film Streak. Thanks for checking this out. Thanks for listening. Every week here on Film Streak, I'm going to go through the previous weeks of movies that I've been watching. I'm watching something new every day. And sometimes it's new. Sometimes it's something I've been meaning to watch for a long time. Maybe it's can be. it, it might even be some obscure art house type thing that uh, just got overlooked. And this week in particular, I'm going to go back and watch some things I just meant to watch over the years, um, namely because they all won Best Picture at the Oscars in previous years. And hey, look, you, you can take the Oscars as serious or as not serious as you want, especially considering how things went this year. Uh, I think a lot of people probably question how much stock they really put into what matters to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Okay, so I'll just say this. Um, it's always been a thing of mine to at least look at the nominees and the winners, uh, whether it's the films, the performers, the uh, the directors, the writers, all those. Like, I'm interested to know what the industry thinks is the best. And sometimes that translates to audiences and, and viewers that really identify those as the very best of that year. Other times it really doesn't, right? Um, there are movies that have gone on to win, win Best Picture and nobody ever hears about them ever again. And I'm going to talk about some of those. But here are the ones that um, I just never got around to watching. And for whatever reason... You know, starting in, I think it would have been maybe like, uh, I think it was 87 or 88. I think it was the year that, I think it was the year that Dancing with Wolves won. Actually, that might have been a little bit later. But it was right in the late 80s. That's when I started paying attention to the Oscars and like what what was making the the rounds as best of the year and, and so on. And so that's when I really started trying to watch, if not the winner, uh, most of or all of the nominees for each year. And that went through about, um, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. I just started to see like the movies that I liked weren't necessarily the movies that were winning and or being awarded, put it that way. So in that case, I just said, well, I just know I'm going to like what I like. And if it won Best Picture, maybe there's some merit to it. Maybe there's something worth seeing there, but I'm not necessarily going to expect that I'll like it the same way. So anyway, it's a long way to get around to saying like some of these movies I just skipped over the years. I just put them aside. Didn't really feel like that was something I wanted to watch. And so now here's a chance where I can do that. I can put these into the film streak and we'll get them out of the way. Call them done. Right. So that's what we're doing. So let's pick this up. All right. So we're going to pick up film streak where we left off. Um, now we're on number 86. And this is The Apartment. Uh, this was uh, from 1960. It was directed by Billy Wilder. Uh, stars Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine. And, you know, I didn't really know what this movie was about. Um, I like Jack Lemmon. And uh, some of Billy Wilder's films I really like. Um, this was one that I just, I don't know. Something about it didn't seem like it was very interesting to me. And... Once I started to figure out or read about what it was and when I added it to this week's movies, um, considering how things have changed over the last 60 years, uh, I thought, oh, this might actually be something really important and relevant to talk about. Um, 
if you haven't seen the film, the apartment is about a man. His name's C.C. Baxter. He works in a corporate job in New York. And, you know, he works at a law firm and he's trying to work his way up. He's trying to find some power in his career. So he's made an arrangement and it's really established like before the movie starts. So you're not even sure how this is all playing out. It's, it starts to come together over the course of the film, but there, he makes an arrangement with some of his coworkers, some of his you know bosses uh, at the law firm to loan them his apartment for their trysts and their affairs and their, you know, one night joints. So I don't know. It's just got a weird kind of scummy premise to it. And, you know, Jack Lemmon seems like such a kind of good hearted, good natured person. Uh, even the character, he's he's kind of uh, he's doing this arrangement and it doesn't seem like he's doing it with any malice. He's just doing it as kind of a convenience and a favor. And it, there's a point where it starts to like kind of put him out like he's inconvenienced by it. But it doesn't ever seem like he has a real moral issue with it. Until later in the film, when he starts to realize the the types of the types of damage that might, he might be doing for uh, either people he works with or people around him in his life, and it's only until Shirley MacLaine she plays like a um, I guess elevator operator, you know, I, I maybe that was a thing in the fifties, but here it's a it's a case of C.C. Baxter kind of meets her kind of falls for her. They kind of get into a relationship, but then it turns out she's actually someone who has been to his apartment or visits his apartment with one of his bosses. And that's where he decides like, this is not the right thing he's been doing because someone he actually cares about is now one of the people that is in his apartment. And uh, it just introduces all kinds of moral questions. And, but it seems like there's questions that he should have maybe asked himself early on. So, for me, like watching this now, it's really hard to identify with this character or feel like I should be on this character's side because he's kind of a scumbag to have this kind of arrangement and not feel any real uh, guilt or remorse about it. So that's uh, that's always the hard part is you want your protagonist to be somebody you can identify with and, and get on their side when they start to try and make the right decision. So here it's just really hard to do that. Now that's not to say the performances aren't uh, well done and the writing is actually pretty snappy, pretty fun, pretty interesting in terms of it's dancing around this really kind of creepy uh, premise, uh, but it takes it in in a light and, and kind of a darkly comedic way. So it's hard to, necessarily be on anyone's side in this story um, other than to say that some of the choices in it are actually pretty interesting. Uh, they're, they're pretty entertaining, put it that way. And if you look at it that, if you look at it as only that, as entertainment, then this might be a pretty fun watch. Um, if you look at it as some kind of possible uh, perspective on uh, either corporate, you know, society or corporate culture and how people may treat each other or may treat women specifically in the workplace, this is going to be a real trouble for you. And look, I, I have to watch it through the lens of today. I didn't see it when it came out. I wasn't even alive then. 
And I didn't see it in more recent years. I'm seeing it today. And today is a very different time than 1960s. So just take it with a grain of salt that this is going to feel like it's from a whole different time and with very different sensibilities. So with that in mind, um, this one could be a recommendation. I mean, the, the pedigree here is really high. Like the, all the people involved, they're, they're, you know, a legendary part of Hollywood and, and the filmmaking industry. But, um, the story itself, the premise itself might be a little bit troublesome if you're not, not down with that. And I say, look, I say not down with that, but I just mean if you have any kind of real issue with what line this is straddling. Um, so, Anyway, just take that as a possible recommendation. If you happen to see it, if you're in the mood for a classic black and white Hollywood era movie, then this might be a good one to pick. It's it's kind of amusing. Um, it can also be a little bit um, a little bit troubling. So that's the apartment. That's number eighty six. Um, next one I want to move to is uh, one that I honestly had never even heard of before, and. Even to look it up, I had to do a little bit of searching, a little bit of digging to find somewhere to watch it. Um, that is number 87. This is Tom Jones. And this is a film that uh, was produced in 1963. And from my understanding, it's based on a very old English uh, book or novel. And, you know, I, I, I think there's something to this film that if you look at it through that lens, like if this is adapted from a classic piece of literature, okay, that's one thing, right? That's a, there's a certain understanding of what they were trying to achieve with this. If you look at it as just a film itself and the characters, the way they're portrayed and, and the story, the way it's, it's kind of uh, laid out, uh, it's kind of a tough watch, uh, for me. Um, there's so much in this film that feels very uh, theater-ish, right? Like there's a lot of, uh, I mean, a lot of the dialogue, a lot of the performances are big and loud and grating and annoying uh, at some points. And I just think that, um, you know, if that's the approach you take with a film, then everything has to dial it up, right? If you've got a film that is big and bold and loud, you know, you think of something maybe that uh, Baz Luhrmann would have done, like uh, uh, Moulin Rouge or, or Romeo and Juliet. You know, some of those that take take the volume up and they sustain it and they make it actually entertaining and appealing. That makes sense. Here, it doesn't. It kind of dips and dives and, and it, it has all these kind of variations. And yet it's all set in this, um, I don't know, I don't was it like a Victorian era or... It's like the 1700s uh, in in England, and it feels at times very kind of stiff and cold, and other times it's just so loud and, and annoying. And meanwhile, the story itself and the characters themselves are they're just getting lost to me. Like, I don't feel any connection. I don't feel any amusement by what's happening in the story. Um, and honestly... I can't even really tell you much about the story because it just it just didn't didn't work for me, didn't play for me, and maybe that's me personally. Um, I'm sure there are many that appreciate the the liter literature that's involved and the the I guess the history of it, but 
Oh man, uh, this one was a hard watch for me. And, you know, I always think of, there's a film that this made me think of actually, and it's called Barry Lyndon. It's by Stanley Kubrick. It's one of his, I guess, more, more notable films because of the way he shot it and maybe even the story that's involved. And this kind of reminds me of that in the overall style of it, but it is more of a comedy and it is, um, like I said, just kind of brash and that just doesn't really doesn't really play so well so i'm gonna have to give this one a pass i appreciate the effort and i appreciate the maybe the the history and the legacy of it but as a film i mean when is the last time anybody talked about tom jones from 1963 you know sometimes something like that tells you what winning best picture can or cannot mean it can mean that you have a long life of, of film history. It can mean that you won one year and nobody ever talked about it since then. This is one of those that I feel like is kind of the case. But that's my personal opinion. In the meantime, if you see it, if you're into this story, this type of story, if you're into the, the literature that it's based on, maybe give it a shot. All right. So let's move on. This is going to be our next one. This is number 88. This is In the Heat of the Night. Now, this is a film that came out in 1967. It was directed by Norman Jewison, which is, you know, if I look at it, that era of like the late 60s, maybe into the 70s, there are some films that he directed that I really enjoy. And, you know, I actually talked about one on a previous episode, The Cincinnati Kid with Steve McQueen. Um, I also like The Thomas Crown Affair. Um, uh, there's probably a couple others. But, you know, this one was one that for some reason I just didn't identify as one of his films. Um, and also my memory of in the heat of the night as a, as a story, as the premise was really based on the TV series that came out, I think in like the late eighties, maybe like 87, 88. Um, and you know, it's based on the same thing as similar premise and similar characters, but, uh, I'd never seen the original film. And so watching this now, uh, it's it's interesting as a kind of a glance back to a different time. You know, this came out in 1967, kind of at the height of the civil rights movement and the story itself, the characters, uh, Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger really playing these two kind of uh, um, uh, these two forces that are not going to be able to, you know, dominate over each other. They're, they really have to learn to work together. Uh, you know, the basic premise is Sidney Poitier is kind of passing through some small town in, uh, uh, was it like Tennessee or somewhere? Somewhere in the South. And uh, Rod Steiger is a police chief there and they kind of take him in as a possible suspect because there's a man that's found dead in the street and they don't know who it could have been that did it, but he's one that you know, for being in the South, I guess he stands out as a suspect automatically. And I think that's more of a state of, you know, where things are, uh, particularly at that time, maybe even still today. But look, the way Sidney Poitier carries himself, and I think that's part of the legacy that he's left behind, recently passed away also, is that he portrayed a strength and a dignity and, and even a charisma to charm and turn 
Rod Steiger, the police chief, and the, the other police officers and the community there, turn them around and help them see that he's a smart man, he's, an, he's a thoughtful man, uh, he's a brave man. And, you know, and, and this is an allegory for a lot of things in culture, but the fact that he is able to solve the case that they can't solve, that they originally suspected him of committing, <laughs> he's able to turn all of that around and make it work and find something to identify with this police chief and build a little bit of a rapport and a relationship with. You know, it's funny that uh, there's parts of the film that I think Sidney Poitier really elevates the game, takes it to a different level, which is great. And yet Rod Steiger, who I always thought was an interesting actor and kind of a man's man and, and a real um, kind of a powerhouse, really, you know, in some of his performances. Here he he brings that as like the front, as the face of the character. But when uh, the character Gillespie, when he's kind of challenged by Tibbs, by Sidney Poitier and he has to really rethink some of his positions, some of his perspectives on not just on, let's say, African-Americans or uh, criminals, but just, you know, the way he's living his life. He, he Rod Steiger really pulls that back. And there's a scene towards later in the film where he starts to unveil a little bit more about himself and why he is the way he is and why he does his job the way he does it. And I thought that was a really interesting, really powerful, and 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 kind of a a subtle moment. It it doesn't linger too much on it, but it does give this character who kind of comes off as a hard ass. Uh, it gives him a chance to kind of explain himself in a way, and give the audience a little bit of justification for why he is his the way he is, which is not hateful and it's not necessarily even racist but it's just almost like almost like willfully ignorant in a way like it, it's not a matter of he doesn't want to accept tibs or he doesn't want to accept certain things about you know um the community or the people that you know, are committing crimes and all that it's more that or the way i see it it's more that this guy just doesn't know how to do it a different way and maybe doesn't understand there are better ways, smarter ways. And so that was a layer beneath what I thought this was going to be, which was really, it was really good to see. Um, yeah. The only thing I would tell you about Rod Steiger and his performance is I've never seen a police chief or captain or, or supervisor or anything like that in a film Stand around with their hands in the pocket so much. Like, bro, you can't, I mean, you're law enforcement, you're a figure of authority. Don't stand around with your hands in your pockets. Look like you got something to do. That's all I'm saying. All right. So that aside, look, In the Heat of the Night is definitely a recommendation for me. I think it's really, um, you know, it's, it's in a way, it's a little bit sad that it's still relevant today. Some of the, the points in the film. But I think it does what it does. It does its job of communicating the the emotion behind it and some of the perspectives behind it in a really nuanced and, and a subtle way. You know, it's not so over the top. It's not 
big and brash, it, it really lets you lean in and get into those moments with these characters. And so that, I guess that's the, the legacy. That's the last in power of this film that it's, it's still considered, I think, uh, kind of a landmark in, um, in a lot of ways for the civil rights movement and for the sixties, you know, in terms of film. So check that one out for sure. In the heat of the night. Okay. So now we're going to move on. This is number 89. This is ordinary people. And this is from 1980 directed by Robert Redford stars, Donald Sutherland, Timothy Hutton, uh, Mary Tyler Moore. And going into this film, the only thing I knew about it was that, or what I thought I knew about it, was I thought it was a film about a family coming apart because of divorce. That's, that's kind of what I thought it was. And it's only by maybe something I thought I heard or thought I read somewhere. And yet watching the film now and really getting into it and, and understanding what it is, it's not about that. But in a way, it's about something worse, you know, for a, for a family. And that is a family that is truly dysfunctional in just about every way. And, you know, it, the, the one thing with this film I'll say is watching it now, watching it today, there's a pretty heavy, like, veneer of late 70s, early 80s all over it. Uh, you know, down to production design and wardrobe and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. That looks dated. Uh, you know, that's one thing to kind of get yourself through if, if that's a, a, an issue. But the other thing is some of the acting, uh, some of the scenes rather, they feel a little bit like TV soap opera ish, uh, the way they're shot, the way some of the, I don't know, just some of the, the tropes that you might see or associate with like a, a soap opera. That's some of that is on display here. Now, on on the other hand, the writing is really sophisticated and and delicate in a way, and uh, the characters, you know, some of the performances are really subtle, really nuanced, and really natural, which I like because I think this is it speaks to it in the title. It says ordinary people, so let's see ordinary on display. Don't give me big and histrionic and, and over the top. I want to see what this type of story, how this plays out with ordinary people. And so there are parts of the film that I don't, I, I can't identify with necessarily, you know, being a, this is a story about a, I guess a middle-class family from the suburbs in like the late seventies. And, you know, there, there's some of the things that are, they're just not part of my experience in particular, but, as a, as a child of divorce and someone who has a family now with a wife and kids, I can see other, I can see through that stuff over the top of it down to what's beneath that and how that is. I mean, it's poignant and it's, it's remarkable that it, it still, it still touches me, you know, in, in a emotional way today. Uh, considering this film is, you know, over 40 years old now, but there are things that are, I guess, just kind of universal or timeless that if you're in any of these kinds of, you know, relationships or, or just this kind of a family situation, you automatically understand 
what they're talking about and what's happening. And so, you know, the, the basic premise of this is, uh, you know, Timothy Hutton is his character. He, he's a, one of two sons of Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore. And the other son, as is explained in the film, died before the film starts, before the story. And it's all based on a novel, if I understand. So uh, the the author who also helped uh, work on this film. But the, you know, the, the driving force of the story is, is their son who is struggling with something. You know, it's not really clear at the beginning. It's a little bit patchy. Like, is he dealing with some kind of, you know, some past incident? Is he dealing with some fears about things, you know, being a teenager in high school and, and what those things, what that time of life, you know, can mean for people, you know, making the change from into adulthood and all this stuff. And it's, uh, it's interesting because it doesn't just play from his angle either though. It plays from the parent side. And when you see the father who is trying to be understanding, trying to be, um, you know, acknowledge that his son is going through something, trying to be encouraging also, uh, trying to be a, a really present figure in his life. And meanwhile, the mother is going through things about it, just going about it in a different way in terms of maybe shrugging off whatever is bothering him and rather, you know, trying to focus him more on what he should be doing in the future and, and everything else. And, you know, you could say one could work uh, just as well as the other, but if someone's dealing with real trauma or, you know, something in the past, uh, those things have to be worked out. And this is where I feel like this is one of those films that was early on in that conversation of, hey, we can't just brute force our way through life. Sometimes we have to stop and we have to reassess and we have to think about what is hurting us and what is in the in our way and and how we overcome that and how we get through that. So in that case, this film really introduces uh, I I think something new into into I guess popular culture or or at least how families operate and and even perceive the world around them. You know, there's there's also a character in here uh, played by Judd Hirsch who is his kind of a, a a doctor, a therapist that he's going to talk to about what's troubling him. And, you know, it's funny to look back now, like there are moments and, and I'm going to guess pretty confidently that some of Goodwill hunting where Will is dealing with, uh, uh, Sean, Robin Williams character in that movie. I feel like some of that might've been inspired by this film which was maybe like 15 or almost 20 years earlier. So having this kind of a, a scene or this kind of a dynamic between these characters in this movie, where they're really laying these feelings and, and emotions out on the table. And sometimes it's hard to make sense of it. Sometimes it's hard to understand, but these characters do eventually kind of come around to knowing what's hurting each other and trying to move forward. And so, I, you know, for that, I mean, also being able to identify either as a child, like 
who you are in this story, right? As either the, the son uh, or the child in the relationship or one of the parents in this relationship and how you handle dysfunction and how you handle grief and trauma and all those things. That's kind of an interesting way to watch this film. And that's I just naturally, I just started to do that. And I realized that funny enough, I guess me personally is a little bit of a personal take here, but I've been every one of the people in this movie at some point or another. And to me, that just made this thing hit home so much harder. And so Ordinary People, it's a solid recommendation for me. I feel like it's one of the best films I've watched so far on Film Streak here. And, uh, you know, if, if if you're a child of a family that's dysfunctional, if you're a parent of a family that's dysfunctional, if you're in any way in a dysfunctional relationship, this film might really have some interesting insights, uh, maybe into how to change some things, maybe how to see some things differently, uh, but also how to deal with some of your troubles. And, you know, it doesn't have answers for everybody, of course, but it, it'll make you think at least. It'll make you ask some questions. So, you know, that's all that I want out of a film. I really want something that's going to challenge me and make me think and make me consider what I'm doing with myself and, 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 and for anybody else that's watching it, I would think you'd get the same out of this. So this is a solid recommendation for me. This is ordinary people and watch it wherever you can. Okay. Just find it. If it's streaming somewhere, take a look. Um, all right. Number 89. That was a big one for me. That was a really powerful one. I'm like, I'm going to add that to this. Okay. I'm going to add that to my collection. Um, some point or another. All right, so let's keep it moving here. Number 90. Now, this is Chicago. Now, this is from 2002. Uh, this is directed by Rob Marshall. Stars Renee Zellweger. Um, who was it? Richard Gere's in this. Catherine Zeta-Jones. Um, a lot of people, actually, that I didn't know were in this film. I, I mean, if you look at, like, the poster for this, it's, it's like, just the three of them. But, like, Queen Latifah's in this. Tay Diggs is in this. Like, um, who else is in this? Um Oh, there's somebody else that I'm thinking of. It's not coming to mind. Oh, John C. Riley's in this and singing and, and performing in such a way that I, I didn't know was a, I didn't know it was a thing he did, but all very cool. You know, this, I remember when it won best picture and I didn't understand because I wasn't sure if it was a musical or not. Oddly enough, I don't have a history with like uh, Broadway musicals or, or, you know, musicals in general on stage or on screen. I just don't, it's not really a big thing for me. So this, I had no context. I had no understanding of any of the history of it. And so when you watch, like I remember some of the trailers and stuff back then, like it seemed like it was a musical, but it also seemed like it just had, you know, kind of this, like a crime story in it somehow. So once I actually now get to watch it, I can see that it's a really interesting mix of both where the musical numbers are presented and, and filmed in a way that they're stage numbers. So to me, you know, I, if I back up here for a second, like I think of, of musicals in terms of 
oh, it's two people walking down the street, they're talking, and then they just break out into song, and then maybe other people around them join them, and it becomes a whole thing, like in the middle of the street or whatever it is, right? And then they go back to normal. And so this is not that. There's really not that in the way this is presented. It's more done in terms of there are scenes, and then there are these musical numbers that either accent the feelings in the scene, and sometimes they're they're like uh, they're almost like switched out. They're like cross cut between the real thing that is maybe playing out like in a courtroom, and then a musical number that is playing out where characters are kind of in the similar position, but there's a whole different background and, and other people around them and all this stuff. It's a really interesting technique. Um, and I'm sure other films have done it too. I, I'm just not familiar with musicals on film, but uh, I I like that this had a really strong sense of style to it. You know, the performances and the, the songs and all that. I'm, I'm sure it's, it's, it's a celebrated thing um, throughout the years that this particular show, but I have no background to it. So all I can go by is what's on the film here. And so to me, that was all well done. You know, the performances, the dancing, the singing, all of that, um, even the acting, some of it's a little bit over the top and a little bit um, kind of a throwback to that era. I, I think it takes place in like the 20s or 30s. And so I get that. That's all part of the the style of it. And yet there's just something else. There's a whole different level to it uh, in terms of like the way it's shot and the way it's edited. Like some of it is very reminiscent of like a more like a modern day music video but then it's i think it's actually well done the way it's combined with that throwback you know 20s and 30s style of filmmaking so um uh i i really thought it was interesting i i would probably watch it again actually because there's so much hap there's just so much going on in the musical numbers that uh I, I kind of found myself, surprisingly, I found myself just waiting for the next musical number, not really paying as much attention to the, the scenes and the plot that was happening, um, which was kind of counterintuitive to me. Like I, I normally, if I'm trying to watch a musical or something, I'll just like, OK, let's get through the song, get through the song. Let me give me, give me back to the story. Here, though, since the 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 performances, the musical numbers do add to the story or at least contribute to it. Um, you have to watch them. Like you, there's no way you can really not pay attention to them or skip them or whatever. It's all integrated so well. And so I thought that was really well done. Um, you know, I don't know that it would necessarily have won best picture for that year in my mind. Like I can't remember what, what, what else was nominated that year, but, uh, it's definitely a, a solid effort. It's, it's definitely well done. So in that case, take a look at it. If you're into musicals especially, um, and you know, hey, maybe there's something about this that is like, um, um, you know, just doesn't really vibe well with people who are really, really into musicals. Maybe something here is uh, a little bit, um, you know, offensive to, to people who like know the original uh, material or, or uh, understand like Broadway musicals and how they, like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't care. All I know is I watched this film and I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was very entertaining. 
intriguing and, uh, you know, thrilling, maybe in some ways. But most of all, I just watched it for the show. It's just a matter of going and just watching everything, all the lights and all the, the sounds and everything and enjoying it for that. So that's why I say, I don't know if it's a ringing endorsement that this should be best picture of that year, but Hey, for, you know, watching it on a Wednesday night or whatever, it's, it's pretty solid. So that's Chicago. All right. So let's, uh, let's keep moving to the next one. Now, this is number 91. This is the artist. Now this is from 2011. And this is, uh, this is an interesting one because, this is directed by somebody I don't know, stars people I don't know. Well, there's a couple, but for the most part, this is a film that I think a lot of people probably wondered, what the hell is this? And now, over 10 years later, people are like, wait, what was that? Because I don't know that anybody ever has talked about this film since 2011. You know, I'll just start by saying, like, it's, it's a story about an actor in the 20s who uh, is, is doing silent films and the transition is starting to happen where sound is being introduced, right? The technology has been developed. Films are starting to have sound. So that means no more of that silent film style. And, and, and you know, in a good way. I mean, it's expanding the, the form, right? Like the, the creativity is kind of taking an exponential leap now because now you can use sound. And there was a resistance, I'm sure, within the industry and even maybe with audiences of like, I don't know what that means now. Like, I like watching my films this way. Why are we having sound in the mix? Like, why does that, how does that improve it? Why is it better? And I'm sure most people did appreciate it and did like the addition of sound. It's just like when you went from black and white to color, like, oh, it's more lifelike. It's more real now. Like, I can be more engaged with it somehow. A good story is a good story, no matter what, whether you have sound or you don't, or you have color or you don't. But this, I think, at least tries to illustrate the different attitudes about it at the time. So you've got this actor, George, who does this with silent film and sound is coming into the mix. And so there's a young actress, her name is Peppy, and she is trying to make, you know, make herself into a star, trying to find a big break somewhere. And she does, partly due to his help. But she takes off his her star just, you know, goes through the roof and his starts to tank. You know, he starts to go broke. He starts to have all kinds of troubles, can't really make a living in film anymore. And their relationship throughout the film, you know, it kind of turns and then it has its twists. But eventually she brings him into the fold and kind of, you know, yanks him into the future, you know. So, um it's an interesting way of telling that story, like the, that era in the history of film and how things changed and what that meant for the people in the industry. And in terms of how this one best picture, you know, the only thing I can think of, and, it's, and honestly, I didn't think of it, but uh, a friend of mine uh, has had for a long time had a theory that any film that is about filmmaking or you know, related to filmmaking or the people who make films, it's it plays well with the Academy and with the voters and with the Oscars in general. So it's almost like a shoe in to win some awards. 
And, and I understand that in a way. It's like when you see someone depict the job you do and either in a romanticized way like this, uh, or maybe in how it can change the world or save lives or whatever, like in something like Argo, right? It's not really about making a film, but, you know, one of the threads in that film is about how they put on this, you know, uh, ghost production of some science fiction film to save these people in Iran. And, oh, you know, oh, we're diffusing a, a global crisis here, you know. Uh, look, that that's where I feel like, and, and we've seen it now with this year's Oscars, that Hollywood and the film industry sometimes takes itself way too seriously. The, it overinflates how much good it can really do in the world. Because just as much good as it can do, as much entertainment as it can bring, as much enlightenment as it can bring, it can also have its harmful effects. And in terms of the the fame that it can generate and the celebrity that can come out of that and the either corruption or just uh, abuse that can happen at the hands of all that, which we've just seen, right? So there's a balance there. And times like this, in this film maybe, in this year in particular, where this one best picture, I, I mean, it just feels really like, you know, a big jerk fest. Like, uh, I, I'm not saying that there's not, you know, legit craft and talent in making this film. And even the, the premise of it is is really noble to kind of, you know, understand a little bit of this era of film history. Um, but I just feel like in 2010, 2011, or whichever year, uh, there were other films that I'm pretty sure would have beat this out. I mean, there are other films that you talk about today more than you talk about the artists. I'm pretty sure of that. So... Watch it if you can and enjoy it for what it is, but also take it into account that this one, maybe not necessarily on the merits of its story or how well it was done, but just on the subject matter. And look, I mean, if you love films like me, I understand that there's a there's a good side to that is I want to see a story like this. I didn't necessarily need so much of the clever tricks that it tried to pull where for a, a good portion of it, it is a silent film. And there are even parts where it's a silent film inside of a silent film. And there are some other tricks that come into play as the, as the film goes on. So, I, I mean, it's clever. It's, it's a little bit uh, inventive. And so that it's not just a complete silent film in that, you know, 1920 style, but, uh, I just think um, if you could have just told me the story straight, it might have been just as effective. I don't know that, right? I don't know that. I feel that maybe that's been done before and it didn't work. And that's why we never heard of those films. But here we have a very solid effort. And maybe I wouldn't consider it best picture of that year, but uh, it, it's it's a recommendation. So, all right. So check that one out if you can. All right, so now let's get to number 92, and this is this year's most recent Best Picture winner, and this is Coda, as from 2021, as written and directed by, let me get the name, Cyan Hader, Cyan Hader, uh, stars Amelia Jones and Troy Kotzer. There are certainly other films I saw last year that I thought would have been better 
choices for best picture. This one, I can understand why it was nominated. Uh, the fact that it won best picture, I, 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 you know, that's part of the thing sometimes. It's trying to kind of decrypt or, or understand why something is chosen. Because you have to remember who's voting, right? There are people who are in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So they are filmmakers and, and performers and, and creative people in that industry, right? So it's your own peers and colleagues that are voting for you. So when something like this is chosen, it's a little bit of a puzzle trying to figure out why. Because, look, every film has some merit to it. And some have way more than others. Some have way more craftsmanship or, or time or talent involved. But that doesn't necessarily make them better, right? Sometimes it matters more how it impacts you and how it impacts your audience. And so this, I feel like, is one of those sec in that second group where it's not big and flashy and it doesn't have maybe a lot of money or talent behind it you know uh, uh, this is by all accounts or the way it appears to be at least this is very much an independent film it has to be more measured and just more delicate in how it plays you know how it plays out so when you come to something like this where it's about um a young woman who is uh, about to finish high school and wants to go to music school, wants to sing. And yet her two parents and her brother, older brother, they're all deaf. And how that struggle takes shape when she wants to leave, she wants to have her own life. And yet the family and the family business needs her, like needs her to function in some ways. And the struggle there, it's a struggle that I think people can relate to in, in a bunch of different ways. And whether it's just, you know, being a kid and growing up and wanting to leave home, wanting to do your own thing, and maybe you have some obligation or, or feel like you have some obligation that you can't let go of. On the other hand, being a parent and having children that are, are in their late teens and moving into adulthood, I can see it through that lens too of, not necessarily wanting to let go, but also knowing that you have to do that as a parent. You have to be able to, you know, turn that loose and build your life for yourself and make it for yourself as a parent on your own without your children there because they have to live their own life. And so like, there's so many different things in this film that I thought that I wasn't really anticipating but once it it was kind of made clear, like this is the these are the themes involved, uh, it 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 was powerful to me. It did have an impact on me, and you know even something like the so she's a singer, right? She's she wants to learn how to sing. She wants to go to school for it. She's practicing these songs as part of her choir class, and a lot of the songs there are these uh, like late seventies uh, soul uh, hits and. You know, it's funny to think that out of all the songs it could have chosen, these are the songs that are in in play in this in this film. And 
Yeah, I'm not really sure why that is. I mean, uh, maybe I need to give it some more thought. This is the last one I watched, so it's still a little fresh. But, you know, I would think, why wouldn't they have chosen something more modern, something more contemporary? But I guess in a way, I'm okay with it because I identify with these songs more. Like, I identify with the song from 1977 more than I would from 2007. And... You know, I guess if you want to open a film or a story like this up to your audience, you you got to make some reaches. And so I, I appreciate it. I, I liked all the songs and I thought they were well done, actually. I mean, the, that's the thing, too, is like they're really singing like they're they're, they're taking a different you know tack with some of the songs. Um, but just as much as something like Chicago, where you can see the actors are really singing this. I mean, they they really sell it and it really works, um, or at least to me, to my ears. So, you know, all be told, out of all the films that were selected or nominated last year, again, I don't know if this is one I would have picked. And I can't tell you in 10 years we're going to ever talk about Coda again. But I do know that it does work as a film and as a story. And the characters in it are entertaining and interesting and real. And... That's always a good sign to me. That's always a sign that somebody's doing something right. Somebody's got a good ear for something or a good, uh, that's not cool, or a good eye for something to know <laughs> that uh, they're on the right track and their story is going to connect. And so when I see that in this film, I mean, it gives me confidence. I, I want to see what else is going to come from the people who made this film, whether it's a similar type of subject matter or something entirely different. Uh, to me, it's like, okay, well, here's a talent I got to keep an eye on. So I always like when a film does that, when it gives me that that thought to to see what else is going to come from it. So, all right, that's number 92. That's Coda. That's a recommendation. Check that out. I think it's only available on Apple TV, but at some point, maybe it'll be available other places too. Um, but in the meantime, look, uh, this was interesting. Considering everything that happened with the Oscars this year, and you know what I'm talking about, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to just kind of lean into this anymore and just give the Oscars any more weight, right? Give their selections or their, I guess, opinion on what is the best of the year. I wasn't sure if I really wanted to, you know, jump into that pool, but I had already started. Okay. So, you know, when that happened, I was already watching the film. So look, if you watch the Oscars still live, uh, you know, good for you. Um, I think some of the films here and some of the films over history, I mean, especially like the last 30 years, they've been real questionable, like who's won and who hasn't won. You know, there are many years when I look at the other nominees, I'm like, why didn't that film win? And uh, look, I, uh, this is art and at its, at a, at a level that, Maybe most people wouldn't see it because it also is commerce. It is a business, but it is art still. And art is always subjective. It's always up to each individual what they appreciate, what they don't, what they like, what they don't, or what they just uh, are offended by or insulted by or whatever. Either way, it's worth looking at this. It's worth taking a glance, trying to understand maybe why it's important why it matters or why it mattered to the Academy. It may not matter the same to you. 
But that's always been the lesson for me is just to see what else is out there. And that's the whole part of this, right? That's why I'm doing this whole thing. I'm watching a bunch of films I've never seen before because I know there's other good stuff out there and I've maybe ignored it or just hadn't hadn't crossed my view in the past. So that's what we're doing here. That's what Film Shrek's all about, baby. All right. So look, Uh, thanks for checking out another episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, If you want some more episodes, you can go to filmstreak.com. You can find links to subscribe um, to all the Apple, uh, Google, Spotify's, all the podcast places. It's there. Um, And also, you know, if you, I'm going to open something up here in the future with the podcast. I, I want to, I want to, in a way, make this a little bit more interactive. And so if you're listening to this, right, if you're new to the podcast, great. I appreciate it. If you've maybe heard a couple episodes, you kind of get what the deal is. You know, I'm pulling films and and trying to group them together sometimes where there's a common, some kind of common factor between them all for the week. Um, but at some point here, I want to know what you haven't seen. What are you interested in seeing? So, I'm going to open that up here in the near future. And so I'll, I'll give uh, I'll give some more details on that. Like how, if you have a suggestion, like, hey, have you seen this? Or, hey, add this to the film street. Uh, I'll do that. If I haven't seen it before, it'll go on the list and I'll watch it. And I'll tell you, huh, uh, I'll tell you if you're on the right track or if I just don't, I don't know what you're smoking over there. But either way, um, look for that in the future here. Uh, in the meantime, I'm just plugging away, man. I'm just doing all these episodes. or uh, I'm, I'm trying to watch as many films as I can, but I'm trying to watch new stuff. In the meantime, I'll keep watching movies. You do the same. Take care, take it easy, and see you later. I don't know. Still recording. It's a lot of movies. Look, one more episode and we'll be at 100. Can you believe it? I'm going to have watched 100 movies in a row. Not in a row. Every day. 100 days in a row. Okay? That's different. 100 100 movies in a row. Uh, Need a change of shorts by now. No, I'm watching 100 movies every day for 100 days so far. Soon. Uh, Not yet, right? Okay? Soon. We'll get there soon.